You are listening to a sermon preached at Still Bay Baptist Church in Still Bay, South Africa. For more information, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you be blessed in listening to God's Word today. We're in a series on walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, and that's through the book of Colossians. And, and when I thought about this title that is straight from the book this week, I realized that that's, this is the, the radical shift that if this happens in the life of a believer, then suddenly things start falling in place. You get Christians who want to come and they, they like all that God has to offer. They like the the good news of the good news. But they still actually want to live in a life worthy of themselves. They still want to live for what they want and for what pleases them and what makes them comfortable. And the problem is then you're always at this tension. Um, and, and everything in life upsets you because it's not pleasant for you. And, you know, and, and the moment, and I've experienced it in the lives of so many people, when they suddenly go, Jesus, only for you. A life pleasing to you. If that becomes the goal, everything falls in place. And that's why that verse says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness, and everything else will then fall in place. Now, um, where we are in this book is a very practical help to get there. The Bible is not just a, a book of fluffy sayings to make you feel emotionally better. That's how many people use it. It's this little thingies that you can put on your WhatsApp status to, to make you feel a little bit better. The Bible is the book of life. With our kids at Fridays, we're busy memorizing that verse that says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So if I want to know what I must do today, where must I step today, God's word tells me. If I need to know what direction must I head in, the word tells me. And so the part where we are in now is he's dealing with how do I change to get rid of the stuff, the nastiness that's still in my life. And I want to say this, and I really truly believe it. What you will learn here is far more practical and far more helpful than anything you'll find in any psychology book to help you with intrapersonal issues. That's like anger or malice or fear or anything like that. Or, well, you get medical depression, but there's a vast range of depressions that's caused by your inner man. All those things, as well as interpersonal problems. Um, fear of other people, fighting, hatred, living to please others. All these issues that make life a bit more broken. There's nothing as practically helpful as the Bible in this. And so this is why we want to do it. So if you want to grow, and that is hopefully the goal, that we, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed more into the image of Christ. That's our goal. If I look back behind me, I must see a man or a woman who is less like Christ than the person I see today in the mirror. That's the goal. And so, biblical counseling is taking these passages and helping people to get rid of the troubles that they have. Um, but before we get here, because there's going to be a lot of don't do this, do this, change this. I'm going to ask you to check your attitude. There are two different ways people go into something like this. I'm going to, not going to say grumpy old man. I'll say grumpy old person. Okay. 
There are people who, when they get to passages like this, they would go, oh, goodness me, Paul, now I've got to put in effort. Why do I have to change? Why can't people just accept me like I am? Um, that old saying people go to, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, aren't you glad you're not a dog? We are never at a point where we can tell God, that's enough. Accept me like I am. He accepts you into salvation like you were, but He loves you too much to leave you there. That's the journey. And so the one attitude is like, oh, come on, why must I change now? The other attitude is, what? Change is available? I can get rid of this nonsense in my life? Is it really true? That's a far better attitude to go into this. And so we're going to look a bit at what we've learned so far. Um, the, the road to radical change, the road to becoming more like Christ, starts by being born again. So this is all from Colossians. I'm not making this list up. It's all from Colossians. So the idea that um, there's no change possible if you don't have Jesus. Now, people say, of course you can help people who are unbelievers. Can you help someone um, with, who is an unbeliever with their depression? Can unbelievers find help for their depression? Well, yes and no. They can find help for their feelings, but they're still not finding their life purpose. We were made to glorify God. And they might feel better on the way to hell. Did we really help that person? It's like um, putting a new petrol in a car. We're heading straight for a cliff. Does a car drive better? Absolutely. If you wash your car properly, put new petrol in, and you drive straight at the cliff. So only eternal, lasting, perfect change is available for people who are born again, who bowed the need before Christ and accepted Him. The second thing that must happen is that you must realize that you have died and you have raised again. Um, you are not who you used to be. You cannot use the excuse that that's just who I am. That's just how God made me. You are not that broken person from before. You've been made new. Um, I remember hearing about a story about a family where the mom, I don't know exactly what happened in the family, but there was a big fight in the family. And the mom became this bitter person who refused to want to have anything to do with the kids Refused to have to do anything with her grandkids and stuff. And the family tried and the family tried and nothing happened. And then decades later, this mom realized her error. And she said, it's me. I'm the reason. I'm the problem here. And she repented to the family and she made up with him. And her big thing was, so many wasted years. So many Wasted years. And that's what we, we're trying to avoid here. To understand that I can change. I don't have to look back on my life one day and say, so many wasted years. Um, then the next one is the groundwork we spoke about last week. That before I can change myself here, I need to realize my focus can't be primarily on the earth. Then I'm never going to change. My heart, my desire, my mind must be on Christ must be on His kingdom, the world we cannot see. By nature, we put our minds on the world we can see. 
But there's a vast universe of a world we cannot see where Christ's kingdom is. And to focus myself to think there. And then we get to today's practical journey where the road to change is by putting off the old and putting on new. Now, the thing to understand is if I have anger issues and um, sexual problems and the way I speak and stuff, those are just symptoms of the problem. That's not the problem. And so often when you go find for help, then people say, I've got a problem with anger. Okay, we're going to help you with your anger. Just breathe deeply. <sighs> Just count until 110. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Oh no, my husband is still here. So, you cannot solve these type of problems by dealing with a problem. Because it's just symptoms of the problem. The problem is it starts with a broken heart. The Bible's term for the inner man. What's going on? My beliefs, my thoughts, my desires. That's where the problem starts. And so the journey we're going to be on for the next couple of weeks is to realize that I need to find out what my heart problem is by looking at what I'm struggling with. So the journey to find out what's wrong inside here goes to like looking at my actions and say, oh, that's why I do it. Oh, that's why I say it. Oh, that's why I think that. Oh, that's why I believe it. And then you get to the heart problem. Today's passage does exactly that. Once you've identified the heart problems, you remove all those, you put to death those troubles inside you, the, the wrong beliefs, the wrong desires, the wrong motives, all of that. And then you have the power to start dealing with these things then suddenly you, your anger tends to sort itself out then over time the way you speak changes because your motives have changed your desires have changed now what we also see is a lot of people end here and then they think that's good lovely i am now dealing with my sin i'm not a sinner anymore because i don't do wrong things anymore but that's just half of the journey. The rest of the journey is then to put good things in my heart. Because remember what we said last time. Our minds and our hearts refuse to stay empty. There must be different desires, different thoughts, different emotions that I must work on. And then over time, um, that will start flowing over into good actions. Remember, sin is not just doing, not doing wrong. So sin, some people say sin is doing wrong things. That's just half of sin. Sin is also not doing the things I should be doing. And so you have people who sit at home in their own room, they never see anyone and they go, oh, I don't sin. Because you don't have an opportunity to sin. But you are sinning in the sense that God is saying, look after the orphans, look after the widows, help the hungry, encourage the brokenhearted. And I'm not doing that, so I'm sinning because I'm just living in me for myself. And so this is the journey that we are going to be on to the, for the next couple of weeks. So don't miss any sermons, please. That's like reading a book and only reading every fifth chapter. It doesn't help much. If you miss it, we're busy putting all these sermons on podcast. So we will, we will have them available if you can't, be, can't get to them. But the first part of this radical change is put to death what is earthly in you. You can open your Bibles to Colossians 3. We are going to read from verse 5 to 7. 
Colossians 3 verse 5 to 7. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Thank you, Carol. Um, if you've been following where we've been all this time, that is a very disheartening statement. Because we've heard that we have died and we raised again. Why is it not just gone? Why do I still have to do something about this? Why can't I just, like people say, let go and let God? I'm not going to be involved in this process, God. I'm just going to sit back and you must fix everything in me. Why am I given a command to put to death, therefore? The, the reason is that even if, though I'm new, I drag bits of my old life with me. And they, they used to be the thing that controlled me. But they don't anymore, but they're still dragged along. It's like when you send your kid to go bath, and they come out and they're clean, and you put your finger behind their ears and there's still dust there. And you go, what happened here? Yes, you were clean. You bathed. You were into the water. But we all carry these, these remnants of our old self with us. And those are the things that we cannot just accept. You cannot say, well, this is just who I am. God says, no, this is your war. This is where your work must be. This is where you should never accept that this part of me is just broken. No, put to death what is um, put to death therefore. So the good news is that this side of me has lost its power. I'm no longer a slave to it. I never have to say, I can't help it, this is just who I am. God has given me the power. To do something about it. He is in power. So where does, how does it work now? God has power and I have power. God does a lot of things and I must do something. How does that work together? And I think a good illustration is power steering. Now I used to have a car where all the power steering in that car was seated in my muscles. And so when you turned that car, you had to turn that car. And so if you didn't use your muscles, then you didn't your car. And then suddenly you get a car with power steering and you can take your finger and you can turn the wheel. What changed? Did I turn the wheel? No, I didn't. There was power steering turning the wheel. Could the wheel turn without my involvement? No. So I am asked to be, like so Alvin would be right, I was the one that decided the steering must happen. I was the one that must bring my side to it. But I'm not the one supplying the power. I'm not the one doing the work in the background. It's when I come to God and I say, God, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to enter this war. I'm going to stop accepting these bad things in my life and I'm going to start putting them to death. God switches the power steering on. And He says, great. Let your, your work meet my power. And we do it now. And this is very important. Um, you can't live with this and think you're going to be fine. And I think many of you, hopefully not many, hopefully some of you have experienced this in your life, where you became a Christian and there were radical changes in your life, 
But there was one part where you looked at and you said, I know this isn't right, but I'm just going to leave this little bit here, and I'm sure nothing will come of it. And then you saw through the years how it just grew and became uglier and more powerful in your life. You have to deal with it. John Owens famously said, um, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to be in this war. Um, now, again, like I said, a lot of people would agree. They would agree that I need to get rid of these issues in my life. My anger issues, my jealousy issues, my greed issues. They agree with all those type of things. They just don't know how to tackle it. They want to start with the outside. They want to say, if I can just speak better, then, then it will go well. But they don't realize I speak in a certain way because there's something in my heart. So let's look at this line. What he is doing, you will see now, as he picks one example of an external sin, and he traces it back and back and back and back until he finds the root cause for that sin. And this is something we must all do. Look in your life how your sin bubbles out. Grab hold of it and say, okay, why did I do that? What was I thinking while I did that? What was I feeling? What was I hoping for to get in the process? What was I desiring to get from this? Why did I desire that thing? Then you get to the root heart problem where you can deal. So he starts there with um, sexual immorality. So remember, this is what he's doing now. He found something, a sin, sexual immorality, and he's now trying to get it back to his heart um, until he can get to the main boss that must be killed there. Um, now, again, is an example. If you don't struggle with sexual immorality, don't go, oh, luckily I'm not one of those. Um, you will find something in this external list of things that you struggle with. So we get there and he starts with sexual immorality. Um, what is sexual immorality? It's any unlawful sexual act. Now according to whom? The state? The political parties? What the people want? No, according to what God wants. It's always been what God wants. Um, we are still one of those strange churches that believe we need to listen to the Bible. We are still one of those strange churches that says we cannot overrule what the Bible says because we want different things. Um, and according to God, sexuality is one man and one woman who are married to each other. So it's actually very easy to find out what is sexual immorality. It's anything outside that. Anything that's not one man married to one woman in a, in a legal bond, anything outside of that, premarital, extramarital affairs, anything that you can think of, that's not that, is sexual immorality. Why is this God's rule? You tell me. Why did God decide one man, one wife? <laughs> I love it. Because He can. It need, he owes us no excuse for the systems He put in place. He said, I know this is the best system and I'm giving it to you. And man always goes, oh no, we know better. Look at our world. Do you see any better? God decided that's his system. And um, we will unashamedly stand by this. But, and I must always put this disclaimer in, that doesn't make us people who hate those who sin in this area. It doesn't make us people who think we are better than others when we don't struggle in these areas. Because I might easily tell someone, oh, um, 
Oh, you, oh, I'm pressing the buttons too fast now. Oh, you struggle with that. You are such a bad person. And meanwhile, I'm struggling with anger and I think it's not as bad. Or I struggle with greed or pride and I don't think it's such a big problem. Um, as a church, we, our call is not to write off people who struggle in an area, but to help people who struggle in an area to get onto God's plan, which is the best plan. Okay. Um, so now you, you found your broken state. Example, sexual immorality. You have two choices now to make. You can either accept that you are broken and just live with it, which leads to more brokenness and more brokenness we see it in our world, or you can go to God for healing. And so what drives sexual immorality? Let's dig deeper. The next thing he says is sexual immorality is driven by impurity. What is impurity? The word, the word simply means uncleanness, something that's not clean. So the world, it's a world system that is not God's clean system. If you live in a world system and you accept a world system and you like a world system that's not based on God's way, then these things like sexual immorality will come acceptable. And it will become something that you do. But anything that goes against God's cleanness is wrong. And so we have the example in the Old Testament of Sodom and Gomorrah as this picture of uncleanness. I mean, if you go read the story, it's just horrible. From all sides, Lot included. He was a horrible man wanting to throw his daughters outside. Why did he become like that? Because he lived there. He started thinking like them. He started bargaining like they bargain. And God went there and He said, that system is a stench and I will destroy it. Now the irony is, you don't have to drive very far today to get to Sodom and Gomorrah. You just have to open your door. And you're there. So a world where an unclean system is accepted, sexual immorality comes up. So where does this impurity come from? Let's dig deeper. The next one says passions. Some Bibles here say lust. John MacArthur calls this the rumbling deep within our nature. There's just like the strong desire for something. God says this is my plan, but you, you just have this desire to, to go into something that's not God's plan. Um, now, as a believer, can we also experience this? Yes, and we hate it about ourselves. We hate that we see something and we know that's not God's will, but there's something in me that wants that. Something in me that wants to be a part of that. We find it in the Garden of Eden when Satan first arrives and speaks to him. They look at the tree and what does it say? They realize it's something to be desired. There's suddenly this lust, this passion, this drive to want to that. Um, so where does this passion come from? This lust, let's dig deeper. Evil desires. This button either does nothing or it does 20 things. Okay. Evil desires. Now what is evil desires? It's part of our fallen flesh that we want what is evil. It's a desire that is evil. And we don't want what God wants. Um, we, say God, we say God wants this, but we are driven for something else. You see a political leader you hate and you have this evil desire that someone should just take him out. 
Can't someone just take the punch, take the fall, just shoot that guy? And it's like a desire that, is that in line with what God says? Absolutely not. Do we still entertain those desires? No, we don't have a problem with it. We think it's fine feeling like that. It's an evil desire because it's against God's plan. Now, do you see where if I allow these evil desires to live in my heart, I will start having a passion to get there. It lusts will drive me to that. Same thing that happened in Eden. Where did the passion for the fruit come from? The evil desire to be like God. It's not the fruit that was the main problem. Satan came and said, you know you can be like God? And their response should be, no, I am the creature, he is the creator, I should never be like him. But the evil desire said, ooh, maybe I can be God. Maybe I can be like him. And then suddenly you're driven back, oh, look how beautiful that fruit looks because it can get me there. So where does evil desire come from? The next one there, covetousness. Covetousness is a strong desire to possess more and more things than other people have, irrespective of need. So it's a desire to have. I don't really know why I need to have this. I sometimes just need to have it because you have it, and I don't have it. And covetousness is offering at the altar of self. Covetousness says, here is me, I must get all that I want. And I must make effort to do that. We see it again in the Garden of Eden. Why did Adam desire to be like God? Because he coveted to be the one. That was his desire. I don't want God to be the big one. I want to be. I desire the powers that God has. I desire the powers of good and no, evil of good and evil. And then now you see how this leads to evil desires. Because if this is what I, my heart wants, then I start desiring the individual things. And then we take one more step. What, where does covetousness come from? Idolatry. We get to the root of the problem. I want to be God. I want to be God. And I want to worship myself as God. And I want to make sure that everything in life happens so that myself and everyone knows how wonderful I am and how important I am and everyone must treat me well. And that was Adam's big problem. He wanted to be God. And that's been the big problem ever since. We want to be God. Um, now, how do, you, how do you see this idolatry in you? About the things that upset you. What upsets you in life? Think about it a bit. I get upset when people don't treat me like I should be treated. What's the root of that upsetness? Me. Me. Um, I get upset because someone made a joke about me and I was the butt of the joke. Or my comfort is affected. Someone did something now and now life is not as comfortable as I used to have it. Now currently um, we are changing our systems as you would know we are now have an african service in the morning and then we have tea and then we have an english service and there are many things that are changing we have to figure out the sound we have to figure out the practicing and the sound we've got to figure out the tea we've got to figure out the parking and your response will tell you if you are a covetous self-idolater 
or a worshiper of God. And I'll tell you, someone who worships God will go, wow, we get to fellowship more with each other. Wow, the Afrikaans people wanted to be in the morning because the evenings didn't work for them. Let's accommodate them. Let's make things a bit maybe a bit more uncomfortable for ourselves. But we give a chance for more people to come to church. Oh, wow, these sound guys, poor, they just bought a new microphone that is really new and we need to figure it out. So do you get angry every time the system goes bzzz? Or do you go, oh man, I hope they can sort it out so we can have better sound. The T, now you're fighting because this and the T. Do you understand how easy it is to start realizing if my life is, there we go, my life is idolatry, me at the center, or God? And so easy we fall to, I hate this because this isn't geared for me. This is not what I want. You also find it out in the things you complain about. Oh, those people made my life so unpleasant. Did you go and tell them about Jesus? Did you maybe wonder why God put them in your area, in your life? Or did you just think how I'm affected by it? You see it in the things that you wish for and want and the effort you make for the things that you want. And so this is the, this is the journey of figuring out. You are never going to stop your troubles with sexual immorality if you don't kill idolatry of self. All sexual immorality is an outflow of idolatry of self. All hatred, all anger, all fighting, all non-medical depression, all fear, all of that comes from, if you trace it back, you get to, whoa, I still want to be my own God. That's the problem. And this isn't a small problem. Because the next verse tells us, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why is the wrath of God coming? Serious business. Because He will take out everyone else who wants to be God. Because He is the only God. And that's what idolatry is. Now you thought, oh, well, my sin isn't so big. I just get angry with my neighbors. Yeah, but if the root is idolatry, it's a big problem. And the count of this, the wrath of God is coming. So do I as a Christian now have to fear? Do I now have to be scared that, oh, I still have anger in my life. Oh, I still have so much pride. God's wrath is coming for me. No, you don't have to fear if you were truly born again. Because the next verse says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. We don't, we're not there anymore. We are out of the wrath of God. Don't go back there. You used to live there. You used to walk, walking as what you do when you were living in them. Do you see, he says, living in them, my heart causes me to walk in a certain way. He says, that's not who you are anymore. Okay. Now, the worst place to end the sermon would be now, because I haven't told you how to put to death self-idolatry, covetousness. Um, this list I uh, compiled with the help of John Owens that looks at this passage and other passages and the first thing he says is they meditate on God's glory. This is the first part. He says, I'm never going to stop worshipping myself until I realize God is worthy of worship. Until focusing on the things above, Christ seated on the throne, how glorious and magnificent and how great He is, I will still worship myself because that's the best I see, according to me. So firstly, 
meditate on God's glory. The second thing is diagnose sin severity. You know, Satan is very clever and very sneaky. He comes to you and he says, Oh, there's that sin. Ah, do it, man. Don't worry. It's not so bad. Come on, so many people do it. Just go for it. Do it. And the moment you did it, he goes, Nobody does that. You must be a terrible person. God must hate you. Only people that hate God does things like that. And so, he is not very wrong in the last part. But the idea that sin is, is serious. There's no sin that we should say, okay, this one, you're allowed to live in my home. I've chucked enough sins out. Let's keep this one in my house. Diagnose sin severity. Grasp sin's consequences. When you start realizing that if I have evil desires in my heart, it will have all these consequences in my life. Now you wonder, why am I forever fighting with everyone? Um, I can say this because you don't know any of these people. Long, many years ago in a different town, when I worked with the young people there, there was this one girl that whenever she went into a friendship group, within a couple of weeks there would be a massive fight in the group. And she always go like, I don't know why other people fight so much. And she never realized the common denominator in all these fights are you. So um, grasp the consequences of sin. That yes, those things come out of me. The next one is be convinced of your guilt. That's another trick of Satan. Who can I blame for the things that I do? It's not my fault that I'm so angry because you guys did this. It's not my fault that I'm having sexual immorality because God is not sending me a wife like I've asked him so many times. And you start having excuses for your sin instead of finding help for your sin. Um, be convinced of your guilt. Then earnestly desire deliverance. How many times have you been on your knees before God saying, God, this is not who I want to be. Kill this, this, this sinful part that's still in my heart. Help me put it to death. I don't want to be a self-idolater. I don't want to live in covetousness. I want to be a different person who doesn't just want stuff and stuff and they have things my way all day long. And then you check what you're feeding your heart. Because what you put in will be what comes out. That's a biblical concept. So check. Um, I joked last week about um, top billing. If my time is going to spend watching other people's beautiful homes, I'm going to look at my house and go, why can't I have that? Do you hear that? Why can't I have that? Why can't I have that? Idolatry, covetousness. If you never watch Tobbling, you never watch someone else's house, it wouldn't be a problem. Use that time to clean your own house. There you go. Um, check what you're feeding your heart and actively reject fleshly desires and self-worship. So when I do this journey and I suddenly realize, I do these actions because I think I deserve so many good things, then I actively say, that's not true. I don't have to do, I don't deserve things. So I'm going to stop doing sin to get the things that I deserve because I don't deserve good things. Every good thing I have is a gift from God. And then you start dealing with the things in your heart. This isn't a one-day um, fix. It took years to get there. It's going to take a while to get out of it. Get a while to get to the source of the problem and then to start putting these things to death. And we often find it in counseling. 
and maybe it's also the world we live in, that people want the quick solutions. What's the prayer that I must pray that my depression will just be gone? What is the prayer that I can pray so that my kids will treat me better and so that I'll have a relationship? There's no switch. And so what sometimes, not often luckily, happens that I would counsel someone and I say, okay, this is the journey we're going to be on. You as a husband and a wife are fighting. You need to start realizing what, in, what is in each of your hearts. What is causing you to act in the way that you can? And so why, why are you talking about divorce? Why are you hating so much? And then they're like, great, we're going to do this. We're going to walk this journey. And the next week they come and they say, no, don't worry about it. We went to this other church and they prayed and they cast out the demon of divorce from us. So everything is fine now. Okay. Where do you see that in the Bible? And it wasn't fine with them. They eventually got divorced. This is, if God explains it like this, do you think there's going to be a quicker solution? Would have given us the quick solution. Have you ever seen anything in the Bible that says, um, just solve your marital problems like that? What is God's primary prescription to solve your marriage problems? Love your spouse. It's work. It's work. It's decisions. It's what I'm going to do and stop doing, and I'm going to choose to love my spouse. Sadly, it's not often the believer's choice in divorce, but often it can be. Okay, so back to our picture. There's a journey to get better. Um, you will have to choose whether you are going to stay where you are and say, everyone must just accept me. Or whether you desire for God to start a work of change in you. Um, this journey of getting better, the second most important part of that is that my life gets better. When I start doing this work, my anger and frustrations and annoyances and fears and all those things start diminishing because God is busy healing me. And so that gets better. But that's the second best part of this journey. The best part of this journey is that I get to live a life worthy of the Lord. I get to walk in the light like He is in the light. I get to get closer to Him to know Him more and to experience Him more. And there aren't the stuff that always keeps me away from Him because I'm able to deal with it and reach out and know Him better. We're going to stop here for today. We're not going to go into how this flows into external things because we all have homework to do here. The homework is to go look at the things in your life. And as we sit here, it will be different for all of us. What you struggle with, the guy next to you is not necessarily struggling with. Not the external things, but often the internal reasons are the same. So go think about that journey. Why am I so scared of people? Um, maybe because I'm scared they don't see how wonderful I am. Oh, why do I think I'm so wonderful? Because I have a desire to be important. Why do I have a desire to be important? Because I'm coveting. Why do I coveting? Because I'm God. People must see me. Why are they not seeing me as God? You understand? And you trace all those things and then you put to death. You refuse for those feelings to stay and those beliefs and those desires to stay in your heart. And let God do that work of healing. Let's pray together.
Lord, it's sobering to remember that Paul is writing to a church of believers who were struggling with these things. And we know we're in the same place. We are not here to come and act and put on masks that we are so perfect and we get everything right. Lord, you know the struggles we deal with. Whether it is physical things we do wrong, whether it's not doing the things we should be doing, selfish living, not living for others. Lord, you know those things. Thank you for your help to get to the root of the problem. Thank you for the power that you give so that we can deal with the roots of the problem. But Lord, let us be honest with ourselves. Let us be honest that we are guilty. We are the ones thinking these thoughts and desiring these things. And help us to do the work there in our inner man, in our hearts, to become more like Christ, and to be healed and to be set free, and to be people who live worthy of the Lord, dwelling in your presence. We pray all of this, Lord, in your wonderful name. Amen. I hope you were blessed in hearing God's word today. For more information or prayer, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you find your life in Jesus Christ and Him alone.